It's a great book. I read it and I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a, a little book of police youth dialogue, restorative path toward justice. It's part of the little books of justice and peace building series. Written by Dr. Micah E. Johnson and Jeffrey Weisberg. They share the model of police youth dialogue, which is what we'll be talking about tonight. Police youth dialogue is a method to build trustworthiness, mend relationships, and heal historical harms between black and brown youth and law enforcement. And so I'll introduce Jeffrey. For many of you, he needs no introduction. Uh, for those who don't know him, he and his wife and partner, Hart Phoenix, are founding members of the Peace Alliance. As executive director of the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, Jeffrey Weisberg has designed, developed, and implemented a wide range of programs and services in his local community of Gainesville, Florida, throughout the United States and in countries around the world. His work with youth includes police youth dialogues, student educator dialogues, peer mediation, juvenile diversion programs, social emotional learning, restorative justice, youth empowerment, and coming of age programs. That's a lot. For the past 25 years, Jeffrey has served as a Florida certified state mediator and mediates cases involving juvenile offenders, family disputes, and conflicts within small businesses and organizations. In addition, he's using restorative practices to, to su support the Department of Juvenile Justice, the court systems, schools, prisons, and communities to bolster alternatives to the punitive model. He believes that by training and empowering both youth and adults to learn and practice vital communication skills, we not only create greater connection with others, but we can de-escalate conflict for safer and more productive outcomes. And now I'll introduce retired Captain Will Halvosa. I was just telling him I know him better than he knows me because I read the book and he's got some, there's some great stuff in the book about him. After 30 years of service, Will Halvosa retired as captain from the Gainesville Police Department. Currently, he is the Disproportionate Minority Contact Coordinator of that agency. Will graduated from the University of Florida with a degree in criminal justice. He is certified in racial and ethnic disparity through Georgetown University. Will instructs statewide on disproportionate minority contact, racial and ethnic disparity, implicit bias, and procedural justice. Most of his career was spent as a detective investigating major cases. He is also a past president of the Gainesville Police Benevolent Association. Even though he is semi-retired, Will remains involved in community advocacy he is currently a board member of the following organizations, Partnership for Strong Families, Child Advocacy Center, Motivate You, and Youth Build. Youth Build. 
Will is married to Rosa. They have two children, two stepchildren, and one grandbaby. So as you can tell, we have a lot of expertise in the house tonight. So um, I'm gonna start with retired Captain Hel Helvosa. Um, I can call you Will, right? Please. Okay, good. Um, so how did you come to understand that there was a disproportionate amount of black and brown youth being arrested and um, trapped in the uh, prison, the criminal justice system? Well, with a, a lot of arrogance and, and ignorance and uh, denial and uh, <laughs> whatever word you want to describe, I guess, um, I think in, um, uh, and good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Will Halvosa with GPD. Thank you for the uh, introduction. Um, I've, uh, like, I think uh, you, you mentioned about most of my career being defined by detective work. I think out of the 30 years I was a police officer, 25 were in detective. So I was involved in, in the student murder cases back in 1990 here in Gainesville. So I've got a long history and that sort of really defines, you know, my, I love me sort of plaque when I retired was detective work for the most part, I think. So I, I think uh, after I retired, before I retired, just before I retired, I, I really, I, I think I had a hard, uh, a challenging look at um, asking the question, why? I think uh, in, in police work, uh, why is not an important uh, question to have answered. We have to know who, what, where, jurisdictions, relevant, um, how, um, but why is, is not really that important, you know? And, 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 and so I think it wasn't until I really got out of the detective work and started to look at um, what we call a DMC back in um, 2013 and 14, which is the terms that we were working off at, at the time, I, I distinctly remember, I think the chief uh, walking into my office and I was the crime boss at the time, crimes are um, putting cops on dots and, and gathering intelligence for information. Most agencies have a similar model to that that we do weekly. And the chief would walk in regularly to uh, Dr. Grunder, who was our grant writer and talk about a DMC grant that we were had applied uh, for from the uh, Children's Center of Law and Policy at Washington. And, uh, and I would just listen once in a while. And finally, I asked, you know, Tony Jones, if you don't know Chief Tony Jones, he allows me to continue this work, but I uh, asked Chief Jones, I said, what is DMC? And he said, it's disproportionate minority contact. And of course, you know, um, kind of, you know, rolled my eyes and, and bristled a little bit. And I said, well, what's the, the contact, you know, Chief, that's a, what's the issue? The issue, and he said, well, well, the issue is that we're, I think we're arresting, you know, too many uh, youth of color. I think in, in proportions to our, our population, where the amount of youth that we are ar arresting are oh way overrepresented by by uh, black and brown youth. And I kind of looked up and I said, "Well, you're the chief. If you want us to arrest more white kids, and just tell us, you know, I mean." And it comes from a place of, you know, maybe not understanding uh, how complicit I think law enforcement has been in terms of these disparities, you know, that we're talking about. And, um, and I'm going to get beyond law enforcement today, believe me. But I think it comes from a place of um, um, hurting. It, it, it doesn't feel good to, to people to suggest that you arrest people because of their color, right? Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, I respond to behavior. I don't respond to color. But, but I think, um, and so consequently, the chief assigned me the grant. And so I was responsible for looking at all the data. 
And I really started to ask why, you know, why is Gainesville 23% African-American, but the youth that we're arresting are represent 80% of the yeah. youth in this community. And I had to ask myself some logical questions. Why, why is that? You know, it's just, uh, I mean, the, the, uh, are we just assuming that, uh, you know, if you're a youth of color, that you are born and raised as a criminal, right? That's what, that's what we're going to define you. If you get arrested and you have a criminal record, that's what you are. So I had to um, dismiss some of those obvious, you know, sort of thoughts and, and really take a hard look at why we were doing what we were doing. And so the first mm -hmm. thing that we had to do was, why were we arresting kids? You know, what were they committing? And so we had to break down our data going back five years to look at you know some of the areas that we could certainly uh, improve and get a lot better in. So that was sort of my first experience, I think, in 2012 and 13. Um, and since that time, I mean, I've really uh, developed and evolved, and, and, and this conversation continues to evolve. Uh, you know, even as recently as the George Floyd murder from last year. You know, uh, I was uh, requested, you know, to you know, well, will we need representation from law enforcement to speak? We need police youth dialogues. We need that, and like, no, time out. We just need to keep our mouth shut and to listen for right now. So we went through about six or seven months with law enforcement's role really was just to keep their ears open and pay attention to what was going on. Mm -hmm. So I, I just kind of hope I shared with you a little about, uh, you know, my introduction, I think, into this, into this field and, and, and to an area that I, I no longer feel like I'm running pilot programs anymore. I feel like what Jeffrey and, 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 and Gainesville and Electric County and the school board, what we've embarked on, uh, we're going to continue to do it. Uh, it mm -hmm. was pretty interesting. I, I see a lot of agencies <laughs> scrambling to catch up, you know, you know, and, and, and probably being more interested in issues, you know, that they weren't interested eight years ago when we approached them with this sort of training and these sort of models. Yeah. It is interesting yeah. in that respect. Yeah. George Floyd changed everything. Um, changed a lot. You know, I think uh, there's a lot of issues back in 2014, 15 that really questioned law enforcement's legitimacy. And then George mm -hmm. Floyd questioned our existence. So I think mm -hmm. that's how I distinguish the two. But uh, we, we should have, uh, you know, paid attention, I think, back in uh, uh, 2013 and 14. Right, right. Um, I want to read a quote from the book. Uh, people acknowledge that Black, Indigenous, and persons of color experience policing differently with harsher outcomes, but it is somehow taboo or unacceptable that racism should be at the root of the problem. It sounds like you made that leap from thinking you arrested people uh, legitimately and there was no disproportionate arrest happening and realizing that that was happening and that racism was a factor. Yeah, um, I think, um, you know, at the very core of it, you know, with the white supremacy and racism, I think it, it, it has factored into the, the culture and the existence of why we see what we see today. But within those disciplines, law enforcement, the schools, housing, transportation, they all have contributed. Right. And so we, we are have been we've made it worse. And so we're the byproduct consequently of a lot of a, those other disparities that have are the result of, you know, pro, of racial uh, procedures, race, racial mm -hmm. um, policies, racial legislation. So we're the, the byproduct of a lot of what we're learning about. And everybody is all of a sudden learning all this stuff that happened back in the 18 and 1800s. Right. Which I find fascinating. It's great. Everybody's kind of getting on board. And I think that conversation is important. 
You know, mm-hmm. and I think law enforcement needs to understand the communities they've inherited, you know, mm-hmm. not that they created. Right. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fortunate that I, I find like I enjoy teaching officers. Uh, I don't find those conversations to be contentious um, because I, I think I come from a position of a police officer, but also I can sort of see their perspective, but I can also challenge um, their perspective as well. You know, and I sort of can get them thinking about other ideas. Right. You know? yeah. and so it's it's a uh, that this concludes my answer. Yeah. Thank you. And so Jeffrey, how did you and the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding become involved in the Police Youth Dialogues? Well, good evening, everyone. It's so wonderful to see some familiar faces and uh, some dear friends and colleagues. And even my mother is on this Zoom call, so. (laughs) Hi, Ma. you know, I, I, I think it goes back pretty far because uh, Hart and I were a part of the Peace Alliance for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And um, part of our, our purpose and mission for a long time was to promote and advocate for uh, a Department of Peace, a U.S. cabinet level Department of Peace. And um, as you can imagine, that that's like moving the Titanic with a straw. It's a, it's a real uphill slog. And, um, and so Hart and I took this idea of a Department of Peace and kind of retooled it, if you will, and brought it into a local community. And, and it, it really is about providing and promoting best and next practices and principles of peace building. So mm-hmm. this idea of a, of a community-based model that incorporates different peace practices and different strategies um, is, is, our, is our mission. And um, so I had been involved in different community events or different causes, et cetera. Um, and and at, at one point I was invited into a, a training, a police youth dialogue training. I was the only civilian invited. It was all mm. uh, de- uh, police, sheriff, uh, deputies and uh, like DJJ, Department of Juvenile Justice folks. So I felt intimidated as heck, uh, but also very inspired because uh, for the longest time, I said, I'll never work with police. I just felt like they were such a different animal and I didn't think they had were, were open to anything. Mm-hmm. So um, I've really had an incredible experience working with Will and and so many of the other officers. Uh, But through that invitation, Will and I took that model and and, um, used some of the pieces and then added some of our own and and created a a structure uh, to bring law enforcement together with primarily black and brown youth um, and we've done over 110 of these dialogues over the last seven years. So we've, we've trained well over 1,200 officers and over 2,000 youth and uh, just have seen some really tremendous uh, openings and, and potential of changing outcomes for, mm-hmm. for young people, as well as opening the, the eyes and perspective of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been quite a magnificent an interesting journey. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to uh, get to that in just a minute about the changes that y'all have seen. I want to read another quote from the book um, and then get into the history of policing. Uh, this quote, negative perceptions of police 
and generalizations that all cops are the same contribute to stereotyping that can make it more difficult for officers to, to perform their duties. And so, um, Will, I wonder if you can comment on that, especially in today's climate. Uh, it must be very difficult right now uh, to be a police officer. Uh, you know, yes, yes and no. I, I think um, uh, what was interesting I found out in 2014-15, um, when, when there was a lot of criticism of law enforcement, when they looked at the militarization, when they looked at, um, you know, the Michael Brown uh, shooting in Ferguson, um, there was a lot of uh, law enforcement issues at the Tamir Rice. There was a lot of Laquan McDonald. There was a lot of issues going on at that, at that particular time as well. And every night there was like this new video, you know, of this law enforcement involved um, um, shooting. And um, it was also during that time period that um, I, I, I can't explain it, but but every these the, I had this, it was swell of support in our community, Gainesville, Latchwood County. People were actually buying my lunch, you know, paying, thanking me for my service. And I'm like, wow, I'm in the military. I mean, I don't, they'll thank somebody else. It was just a strange, no one had bought my lunch in 25 years. Now I couldn't help but go out somewhere and somebody was buying my lunch, right? And it happened in a drive-through. You'd be the next car up and that person ahead of you just paid for your lunch. And it was a real strange, and but and to me, I, I would probably, and it happened to a lot of officers. One of our officers walked, in, walked into um, uh, Arby's. It was a good place to eat. Um, and um African American gentleman saw him walk in and, and, and got off. He was actually doing some work in there, got off the ladder and, and told the lady he's not paying for his lunch. I'm paying for it. Thank you for your service. And everybody in the restaurant gave him a standing ovation. So despite a lot of what we saw in the media, you know, I, I get that negative rhetoric. And I think that did contribute to a lot mm -hmm. of um, a lot of issues with law enforcement and, and certainly our reputation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I still felt like that we did have a lot of support. I really I really did. I didn't experience that that um, that lack of support that I think that that we talk about. So, right. um, you know, I, I I'm really open to criticism of law enforcement, and I'm opening to having discussions on how we can change and and do better, mm -hmm. and what areas do we need to relinquish. I mean, I'm happy mm -hmm. having that discussion. The the the, the problem is that. Um, you know, they're having these tabletop discussions and law enforcement's on the menu. We're not at these discussions. That's the concern we need to be. And so that was really, I think, uh, I think things are sort of coming around where we're actually having mm -hmm. those engagements and those conversations. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, and so I, I think, uh, um, I think you were leading into this question, talking a little bit about the, the, the history of law enforcement, you know, and sort of how we, you know, e evolved. And I think that's an important educational piece that, that we have training currently with law enforcement um, that we've never had in the past. It just addresses, mm -hmm. you know, slave patrols, you know, address, addresses Jim Crow laws, addresses all of these, these issues that, that, that we, that I think ultimately contribute to a lot of what we see. In, mm -hmm. in Gainesville, for instance, we have these pockets of community, uh, of, of of poverty that that we've been policing for the last 40 years and we haven't fixed any of them and then we're never going to fix them right and so we need to and you have to ask yourself why you, know, you have to ask yourself, why do people live you know do people just decide one day you know what i want to be unemployed uneducated you know and i want to live in a government paid you know housing project i mean people just naturally and i don't care who you are we just don't that's not what people do and so you have to you have to understand that that piece of it, and teachers need to understand the students that they're teaching and where they come mm -hmm. from. I think that's an important piece. But mm -hmm. um, 
so just, I, I think, and, and what's interesting with our training now is that we do it, we collaborate with the community. We have the community come in and, and like Jeffrey said, there's nothing that we train for that the community isn't allowed to come in and train with us. Mm-hmm. And that really does strengthen, I think, those and foster those relationships that we have. Jeffrey mentioned we've done 110 dialogues. There is no goal for dialogues. Your dialogues and your conversations need to happen regularly in your communities. You know, and so mm-hmm. 110, we need to do 110 this next year, you know, and mm-hmm. so we need to continue to have this conversation, conversation, especially with kids, because they keep coming. Kids keep coming. They keep, you know, eighth, ninth, 10th graders keep showing up. Right. And uh, we're not going to stop them. So we have to continue to strengthen and, and, and modify and change. And Jeffrey and I, we have a great model. It's a great curriculum. We have a lot of great topics that we discuss, but sometimes we discuss current events and that might be changed week to week. We had a tragic shooting in Gainesville where we uh, killed a 16 year old that had a, uh, a, a fake uh, AR-15. Um, mm. We shot at him 34 times and hit him four. Oh. And that was the conversation for an entire year. Right. The children couldn't get past the grieving of that. You know, right. and those were tough conversations to have. And I don't think we've ever reconciled that case. But we as a community and we in Gainesville, when you look at what happens around the country, we have to distinguish ourselves in Gainesville. You know, we have to distinguish ourselves to the community and the neighbors that we serve. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that we can do because there is going to be a negative video. There is going to be a negative encounter with law enforcement. It's going to be on video that we're all in law enforcement are going to be embarrassed about, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to reflect on us. And so how we strengthen and how we create these partnerships with everybody and how we make these deposits within the mm-hmm. community are ongoing and they cannot stop. Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether we hire more officers or don't hire more officers, those that sort of trust and that legitimacy has got to continue. Yeah. But doesn't a killing like that erode trust, even if, if you've been building it? It does. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey will tell you, um, the first couple of conversations we had, the kids want to know why we killed Trayvon Martin, right? Why did you guys kill him? Um, and, you know, law enforcement, it was a George Zimmerman guy that killed him, you know, but law enforcement contributed to some of the, where that thing eventually ended up, but, but mm-hmm. law enforcement was involved in that shooting. But I think uh, the, uh, the youth's perceptions are our realities. And I think the, the cops that have come to this training, you know, it's kind of interesting because the cops feel like they come to it to train the kids. <laughs> and it's really just the opposite. You know, we're really hoping the cops will, will sort of open up and see that the hopes and the dreams and just how uh, incredible and uh, and beautiful these these young minds and and, and the hopes that they have mm-hmm. uh, ultimately you know in this community instead of defining them by where they live the fact they've been arrested or anything you know else that we typically do. Yeah. Jeffrey, anything you want to add to this? Well, um, just to emphasize, really the the vitalness of engaging the community in dialogue with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Will and I have often talked about like making deposits into the account, whether you, any kind of relationship. And and if you have a a robust relationship, a robust account, when there are incidents of harm, whether it's personal or or relational or institutional or community, um, then when you take out a big withdrawal, oftentimes the, the relationship can withstand that. And, and I do believe, 
and, and both Will and I feel strongly that the 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 efforts that not only law enforcement but the the different community members have made into Gainesville uh, helped endure uh, some of those other challenges that have come through our community and and so when we see these explosions um, within various communities, it's usually because there's a huge deficit, uh, a trust gap, mm. if you will. And so I'm a, a mediator for almost 25 years and a restorative justice practitioner and trainer. Um, so I try to bring that lens to these dialogues and to the work that we're doing around acknowledging first, what happened and how important that is and essential for, for people to feel validated and understood uh, for their experience and to explore how they have been impacted and um, what are your ideas or suggestions to make things better and how do we prevent this from happening in the future? So mm -hmm. that thread is something that we really tried to weave throughout the conversation between young people and officers and uh, is one of those things that, again, helps to create some deposits into that account of, of uh, well-being. And, and if I could add to that, too, if you, if you think of the restorative justice model that, that Jeffy trains on and utilizes in this mm -hmm. community, to me, that's a, that's a perfect metaphor to what this country and law enforcement, you know, and um, the black and brown community is going through right now, you know, we have to really take a, you know, be able to look at the impact that that's had on everybody that's been involved in that. And so mm -hmm. I just, uh, so there's a, there's a lot that we take from restorative justice, I think, uh, in these five hour, they're five hour discussions. Oh, by the way, um, if anyone is interested in them, that's a long time to talk to kids and not really, it goes by really quickly <clears throat> and they all want to come back and they all want to do it again. Mm -hmm. So, we yeah. so um, the policing began with slave patrols. I don't know if everybody knows that. And I'm wondering when you talk to police officers about that, how do they react to the, their origins? So I'm wondering if you've been listening to our trainings for the last six months, because that's been a, a great topic. And we, we came out originally and uh, we talked about slave patrol and uh, two of the first sessions got so offended, it, it made the rest of the training toxic, really. It wasn't, it, we weren't able to get past that. And so we had to really frame, <clears throat> frame it in a different context, talk about it, talk about its relevance, especially in the South. And then, and so we've been able to, to tweak and modify and work so that we have a better training um, uh, module or curriculum that, that just, you know, doesn't just, you know, uh, accuse officers of being um, slave hunters. And I think that's, you know, so we, we weren't afraid to engage that conversation, but I think it was how we presented it to begin with. And it's the mm -hmm. last six or seven have gone uh, a lot better, you know, I think in, in, in endearing the officers to this idea of where we, where we uh, evolve from, you know, mm -hmm. I remind them that we're not mentioned in the constitution, you know, <laughs> or the mm -hmm. Bill of Rights, we're not in there anywhere, you know, and then, um, so a lot of people want to give credit to, you know, uh, Robert, Sir Robert Peel and how, you know, the, maybe some of the New England states evolved, you know, and that's real relevant, I think, in some of what we do. But, but overall, I think in terms of the relationship with um, the, the, the black and brown community, I think that, you know, the slave patrol is, is, is a relevant piece of, of understanding, you know, mm -hmm. and the lynchings, 
you know, and, and the abuse. And uh, there's a lot that we need to understand and, and why we're, like I said, like why we're seeing what we're seeing in our own community. Right, right, yeah. So Jeffrey, can you give us some examples of um, the, the transformation you've seen like in these five hour dialogues? Sure, I'll, I'll try to give a couple stories and, and Will certainly has um, some as well. Um, right. But, you know, the very first dialogue that we did was, I believe, seven hours. Mm -hmm. um, and in that, in our design, we have the young people break off from the officers periodically. Um, and one of these sessions, the instruction was, or the invitation was for the young people to write some meaningful questions that they would ask the police when we came back together. So when we came back together, one kid said, what's one of the most challenging things that you've had to overcome? And three officers volunteered. And the first officer, a woman, um, she said that she, when she was younger, she was driving in a car with her family and her father was actually beating her mother in the front seat and pulled off to the side of the road, kicked them all out and left them. Mm. And another officer, a man, shared that he was sexually abused as a young person. Mm. And the third officer shared that his younger brother accidentally shot and killed his other younger brother when they were wow. kids. And it, it, was, it, it just put this incredible pause on everyone in the space for these young people to kind of uh, create this invitation and ask the, the officers to be real. Mm -hmm. And um, for the officers, we were very impressed that they went to that place. Um, and, and so that is a theme that we've seen throughout so many of these different dialogues. We, we had another time where young people were asking the officers about some of their challenges or who they were as human beings. And then the kids said, Why, can we answer that question? And then one by one, the young person would share what we call kind of below the waterline to be incredibly real and, and vulnerable about some of their challenges. Mm -hmm. And that environment of people doing truth telling um, is one of those central elements of humanizing one another. So we do have the officers in their uniform. They do have their weapons 99% uh, mm -hmm. of the time. And, and our belief and philosophy around that, and some people do it differently, is that if young people can see the humanity and see beyond the uniform and the, and the gun, uh, that they're more likely to see that outside in the community. Whereas if they saw them in civilian clothes and then outside they saw that uniform and the weapon again, our belief is that it, it wouldn't be as effective. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and so, you know, there's been numerous examples of an officer actually arresting a young person weeks or months or even years before, and then they come and show up in the dialogue. And one time we had that coupling and they actually broke off and had dinner together and it was so powerful to see because this kid was like i don't want to be here i don't like the cops and the fact that they were able to actually break bread and smile and laugh and find some things that they had in common um, so there's just many many different uh stories that that we have seen 
where it's that kind of thing where um, we're, we're dissolving some of that, N not mm -hmm. all of it, believe me, there's still mm -hmm. young people that leave our dialogues where they're F12, you know, the F the cops, they, they still don't trust cops. Um, but we've also seen many young people through the course of a dialogue say that they wanted to be an officer. And actually that's fairly frequent that we would see that. But those are a few of, of some of those experiences. And Will, maybe there's a couple that come to your mind that you would like to share. Yeah, I, uh, so anecdotally, I was, you know, I've had some letters from my officers written to me about, uh, especially we did a dialogue one time with the, the, the Alachua County Academy, which is right out here uh, by our jail. And that's actually a... Um, program, a DJJ program um, that locks up girls um, between the ages of 12 and 17. And we had uh, about 20 girls one time come in with our narcotics officers because the narcotics officers don't want anybody to see them. They don't want to be videotaped. You know, they're all, you know, kind of in disguise. So all these girls were from out of town. And so that wasn't a conflict. We, you know, we still didn't didn't videotape it. But at the end of that session, after five hours, we had a line dance with the girls. And it was just a fantastic experience. And I got about four or five letters from the officer about how this really changed their perspective, you know, in terms of some of the youth and, and uh, yeah. thank you, Will, for that experience. And it was really um, a career change, I think, for a lot. Um, we had one hardcore officer uh, one night that was trying to just, you know, unravel the entire dialogue and was trying to sabotage it and doing whatever he could. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't let him. Um, um, and then um, a couple of weeks later, uh, he actually encountered one of the youth that he had a dialogue that was there that night too. And uh, the youth was out past his curfew it was uh, 10 o'clock at night, but they had a discussion about the dialogue and the officer wrote the, in his field contact card that uh, he just, uh, shook, they shook hands and he asked the youth to go home. And that was you know, normally he would have arrested him for a probation violation. So, I mean, you know, again, anecdotally, we do yeah. a pre to post, you know, we see huge jumps with the, uh, with the youth, we see the uh, the kids, the officers, not as much have uh, big changes. But I mm -hmm. think, again, uh, like Jeffrey was, I think, alluding to the the conversation, the dialogue is not a panacea. So you've got to couple that with the training, right? The trauma informed training, restorative justice training, social and emotional, mental health. All those pieces have to come into play, and you have to change your policies. Officers will listen to policies and they'll follow policies, but you have to educate the officers first, and then you change those policies. And your expectations, the community expectations should be represented in those policies about what outcomes you want, right? And so the officers need the training and the tools, you know, to affect those, those, those particular outcomes that the community expects of them. And I think, uh, um, you know, like I, I, I kind of mentioned the Robert, you know, the Dentmont, you know, case here in, mm. uh, in, in Gainesville. And there was, a, you know, a lot of, you know, and, and interestingly enough, and, and again, I don't know where everybody's from, in this meeting tonight, but it wasn't law enforcement the next week that was spearheading a, a town hall meeting on why we did what we did, but it was the NAACP president. It was the faith-based, it was the black on black president. So unless you really galvanize and forge those relationships, you know, you're spinning your wheels, um, you know, going before a city or county commission and asking for additional funding or additional officers. If you're the chief or if you're the sheriff, you know, if you're the mm -hmm. superintendent, um, it doesn't work. You know, but if the community shows up and says, I want my officers to have, you know, 40 millimeter or less lethal or learn de-escalation, that really resonates. 
Right, yeah. I, I want to open it up to questions from uh, the audience. If you would uh, go to reactions and raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question so I don't hog the, the space. Oh, Hart, you're muted. You're Doesn't muted. I just wanted to um, add a little bit to, uh, because I've, I've been a witness to probably at least a hundred of the 110. And, and one of the things is that, you know, first we work with the law enforcement before the kids come in. And that time is really valuable because we share about trauma and about ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences and who these kids are and what they're going through. And that the behavior that they find them in, the things that they find them doing is not who they really are. And, and the kids reveal that just through their youth and innocence during the circle, but even the hardcore ones, you start that cops are able to start to see that very similar traumas that they had as children, these kids are carrying. And that when they see the kids, they're usually called to a a time when there's something going on. So they don't see the best of them. And so we try within that for, to help the kids, you know, reveal their hopes and dreams, reveal that their dream is not to steal a car. Right. Their dream is to buy food for their siblings or, you know, they, pickpocketing somebody or whatever the charge might be if they even did it. And as mm -hmm. we know, often they haven't done anything and they're just getting picked up for nothing. And so I just want to make that point that that is a very strategic training that that they go through. And, it, mm -hmm. you know, that the law enforcement has to make a lot of changes. And we make that very clear that this is not the kids. We're not, they're not brought there to help the kids be better. Right. It's, it's the way that we see each other. And I think that's why Jeffrey and Will are saying that that humanization of each other without with or without a uniform. It's who we are underneath. And I think that that's what we try to lift up, particularly another strategy that we use, which is so amazing, is role play. We have the kids play the cops and the cops be the kids. We literally have a cop car outside, a few volunteers, the cops uh, get, you know, are the kids and the kids get in there, they put on the uniform, the jackets, and they sit in the car and then, you know, all hell breaks loose because that's what happens. Here you have the cops acting as kids, you know, and the kids are videoing them. And it, I mean, the cops are videoing the kids and they're banging on the window of the car and they run away and the kids don't know how to contain the cops. And they're really doing just what happens to them. So they start to understand, how do you do it? You know, and wow. it's, 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 it's like um, improvisation, but mm -hmm. it's quite real. Mm -hmm. so, thank you guys. That's great. I wanted to add that. Yeah. Who else? Anybody else have a question? Yeah, we have three hands, Nicole, Darcy, oh, and Laura. Great. Okay, Nicole, do you want to go first? Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, my question is relating to, um, I know that changing police culture as a whole is important, but what do you see as a way to um, encourage 
individual police officers to challenge the biases, implicit bias and racism that they may have been raised with um, that com- it influences your behavior when you're on duty. Um, I know as a, a white person who has been in a family that is both of uh, first generation immigrants from Greece and also multi-generation um, people from Southern Illinois who are um, very prejudiced. Like I have been influenced myself and had to challenge those, um, those impressions that I've grown up with. And so how can police officers on their own time um, challenge, address and overcome those um, biases that they have? So I'll take a, a, a swing at that. And um, that's a great question. And I think um, uh, what we're seeing um, over the last couple of years, um, I think three years ago, we began the training on what's called fair and impartial policing. So it was just that, looking at you know implicit and explicit biases, you know, and, and going through that training. So our entire agency has been through that training. I think a lot of departments have been through that, that particular training on implicit and explicit and understanding how it affects your decision making, understanding um, this, these uh, stereotypes, you know, how they, they, they come in and show up uh, without permission when you're under stress. And I think mm-hmm. uh, our department, I can say, has we done this, this sort of training. Now, now, at the same time, even though you have the training and, and I really I enjoy doing that training to law enforcement for the most part and to the community as well, because I really have to emphasize to the community that we have our own implicit biases that we bring to, you know, uh, calls, you know, we bring to events, we bring to incidents, but we also have the callers and the complainers implicit bias, right? So we own not only our implicit biases, but we own that person that's calling in that you've seen a lot of examples of in the media mm-hmm. through their own implicit biases. They're calling 911 for a situation that didn't really merit law enforcement's response. So we have to do both. Um, I really encourage our officers to recognize when they uh, experience their own implicit bias. Sometimes you almost have to laugh at yourself like, oh, I thought that when reality, that's my implicit. Know what it is. You know, understand when you've done it, whether it's on duty or off duty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned, you know, through their upbringing, you know, that we develop these implicit biases. I can tell you that cops really develop their implicit biases through their years of service. That's when they really develop their stereotypes and you know, some of those beliefs become hardened. And I think it's, it's, it's up to us to really get in there and sort of maybe reprogram um, you know, when we're making a decision to really step back and look to make sure that we're not uh, making a decision because of where somebody lives, because of the socioeconomic status, because of the mm-hmm. race, because of, it, of those other factors that come into play. Now, what's interesting with your question, Nicole, is that Every level, every key decision point in the criminal justice system is affected by implicit bias. And I think, you know, that training, and if you did hear the instructions in the George Floyd uh, murder trial, he, the judge spent about 20 minutes talking about implicit bias to the jurors, trying not to um, uh, um, make them believe that all cops were the same as George Floyd or that George Floyd was the same. So he spent mm-hmm. a lot. I thought I was like, wow, who does that? I had never seen that. I don't think we do that in Florida. But I was really impressed with the uh, the judge spending a lot of time explaining what implicit bias was mm-hmm. um, to the jurors. Can I just add a, a short point to that, uh, Kathy? Also, uh, so it does take some 
some skill to be able to facilitate these dialogues. First off, a bunch of teenagers <laughs> can be herding cats and a, and a challenge in and of itself. And police officers, similar, I think, to educators, they are a tough bunch often. And, and so we have, I am a civilian and, and will, uh, so we have one officer and one civilian. And, and so that kind of tag team can be really helpful when calling people out, if you will. Another way to say it is how do we call them in to a conversation, to a different way of, of looking at something. And I had to call a cop out uh, because he kept interrupting a kid and he did it two or three times and I called him out. And his, his supervisor was pissed as heck at me. And I felt bad. And so I went and met the, the officer afterwards and I brought him his water bottle that he forgot. And I, I just acknowledged that. And he said, no, 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 no problem. I, I was out of line. And uh, it was just a, a small but important gesture about maintaining connection with our community in different ways. Um, so it, it is tricky, but we do have to kind of acknowledge and call out, call in uh, each other, hopefully in somewhat skillful ways. Great question. So Darcy, Nick, Cynthia. Okay. Uh, oh, Laura so had her hand up. And yeah, Nadia. we've only got like five minutes left. Um, can everybody just real quick say their question and then Jeffrey and William uh, Will can wrap up, you know, and try to answer them. Um, Darcy, do you want to go first with your question? Sure, sorry, here I am in person. <laughs> um, we're experiencing, I'm in Northern Michigan, which is so incredibly white, <laughs> and we're having issues right now in our police department with, we have a task force that's been developed since the George Floyd uh, shooting, and, or not shooting, I'm sorry, murder. And I have, I, it upon myself to actually make a call to our sheriff here in Travers and um, his comments. Yes. Darcy, can you can you ask a question so I can get to everybody's yeah, question? I sure can. I sure can. Thank you. Yeah, I'm getting right to it. So anyway, I called him to say that the task force is asking that you get these cameras and I'm just making sure there seems to be some foot dragging. Are you going to be getting those police cameras? And he said, well, this wouldn't have been an issue in if it weren't for the George Floyd mm. uh, yeah. So how, how as a community, and I was very respectful to him as I spoke to him, but I don't know how as a community member to, to get through that in our community, which is very- Okay, great, thank you. Yeah. Who else wanted to ask a question so we can get all the questions and then we'll wrap up. Cynthia, did you have your hand raised? Uh, you're okay. muted. Thank you. I, I, thank you very much. Well, my name is Cynthia Gillum. I'm coming from San Diego. And I was hearing the officer talk about community involvement. Here in the city of San Diego, we do work with our police department. The church is very, is something that can change your whole community. Um, and the school district, Miss Nancy Merrick, I've been working with her for over 10 years. And my question, um, not my question, I don't have a question, but um, I'm so glad that you changed it from slavery because when you first said that, I got very offended until you said that you had to go back and re rename it and re-look uh, at it. 
when you're dealing with African-American people, anytime you put the word slavery in it, you're gonna get a standoff. So I'm glad that you did um, go into it and rename it and reframe it. But community involvement and specifically the black churches, that is where the power is throughout the United States and, um, and the NAACP. And so that's, that's my little input. Thank you so much, Cynthia. You're welcome. Uh, who else had a question? I do. Laura, Laura Go ahead, ask your question. Nadia? Okay, my question is, uh, I live in Eugene, Oregon, and our police is really very screwed up. When they, they stop me, just racial profiling me, and I ran for public offices five times, so when they take the camera and they claim they have everything video, I went to court to fight a ticket he gave me of 350 for no reason except racial profiling, and and then he edit the whole video. I would like to make sure the police watch for the, this video that they come to the court. And when I went to court, everybody knows me because I run for public offices plus mm -hmm. I'm an interpreter. So the judge said, oh, I have to take whatever the police said. You know, we trust the police. And I said, I didn't say that, you know, it was more than 45 minutes, you know, discussing if I stole my car. My car is, you know, blocked because I ran for so public- Nadia, office. I'm yes. gonna ask you too, can you ask a question so I can make sure we, every, everybody gets- Yeah, I would um, like to know just why the police is, is uh, lying and editing their uh, uh, video after okay. they arrest us or- uh, Thank stop. you. Okay, thanks. Did anybody else have a question? Yeah, Nick and Laura. Okay, Nick. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for putting this on. I really appreciate you guys. Um, I'm doing kind of a similar thing in in DC, um, uh, or at least we had a pilot program uh, doing youth and uh, police separate. So I, I guess my question is, how did you guys in Gainesville, excuse me, how did you guys in Gainesville take it from the pilot program to something that's, you know, a, a more uh, long-term um, program? Okay, good. And then one last question, was it Laura? Yes. Okay. Laura? If it's me, I didn't have a question. Okay, great. All right, great. Uh, hello? So, Oh, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, hi. My only question, I guess, I've been reading a lot about this transgenerational trauma. And yeah. I'm wondering if that is taken into effect when you deal with um, people of uh, African origin. I wonder if that's how that comes into effect. Does it come to effect? And um, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, great, thank you. Uh, so I'm so sorry, we, we've uh, almost run out of time. If uh, Will, if you and could wrap up in two minutes and Jeffrey, if you could also wrap up in two minutes. And I'm so sorry, we, no, this I, was I, such, yeah. Yeah, and so without addressing all the questions um, specifically, but um, you know, I think Nick had a good, 
question about how do you continue this. It's got to be, you know, we look for grants. We look for donations. Um, we're actually a 501c3 at our own department. So we get a lot mm. of contributions that way. But um, uh, I put my email address up here uh, as well. If anybody would like to have a further discussion on these issues or any of the programs that we run in Gainesville or Latchel County with the River Phoenix, I mean, email me and I'd be happy to to share, you know, all of our uh, experiences with you because um, we didn't even talk about data, you know, and data is one thing that we do track and one thing that we're very proud of here in Gainesville. Um, but um, um, community trust and legitimacy, those are hard to measure. Those are uh, almost impossible to really, you know, put a, a you know, sort of a quantitative, you know, number on. So um, it's, it's just a lot of good work. Every, every encounter that law enforcement, I think, has with the community is an opportunity to, to leave that situation better off um, than when you found it. And also it's, a, it's an opportunity to really strengthen uh, our bonds and our relationships. Great. Thank you. Jeffrey? Yeah, I just want to uh, thank Nick and Cynthia, Nicole, Nadia, and Laura for your, for your questions. Uh, if you want to put them in the chat box, we um, will be copying that. And so uh, also my email is in there. But um, let's see. What, what I would say is that, you know, this is, this is like any other relationship, any other relationship. And to expect that you're going to get you know, a, a conclusion or, or a total breakthrough just by one effort, one event, um, often isn't the case. And certainly when it's loaded with trauma, with race, with power structures, et cetera. Um, so we just encourage you to have a reframe about building blocks of community, building blocks of connection through dialogue where we um, can, yes, speak truth to power, but also how do we invite uh, deeper layers of ourself? Mm -hmm. And then finally, I'll just say that um, we're, we're really excited because we just got invited to bring this to the University of California at Santa Cruz to train uh, university police with the students and with community members and faculty and our vision is that it goes well and that it goes throughout the whole UC system of nine mm. campuses. And so mm. it really starts small, uh, get the trust of the people and, and do a good job and um, be a multi-partial facilitator. And there's more that we could say about that. But if you have a bias, if you have a judgment, we have no morally persuasive power with those who can feel our underlying contempt. And so to be in this position as a facilitator is, is not for everyone. And we have to do mm -hmm. our own work in order to create those spaces right. for people. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you, Will. If everybody wants to unmute, we can clap. <laughs> Thank you both so much. So uh, we're going to transition in just a couple of minutes to the Department of Peace Building portion of the call, but I want to provide some links for everybody. Um, if you want to find out more about the Peace Alliance, you can go to peacealliance.org. Our mission is to empower civic action for a culture of peace. Uh, you can listen to our podcast where you can find our Tuesday night monthly Peace Builder calls, our Department of Peace Building monthly call, and our Hope Circles. We're guided by the five cornerstones of peace, which can be found at the link that's, that's uh, in the chat. The five cornerstones of peace are endorsed in the blueprint for peace. Clicking on that link will notify your state and federal elected officials 
that you support policy priorities around peace building and violence reduction, and you wanna see those priorities reflected in legislation. There's a bill before the US House to establish a US Department of Peace Building. This bill calls for a department led by a cabinet level secretary of peace building where evidence-based programs will have a department devoted to ending violence, resolving conflict and creating and nurturing conditions for peace. We're a small nonprofit and appreciate donations of any size. We appreciate monthly donors so we can continue to offer these kinds of programs. Uh, the last link is our calendar of events where you can find all the information about our national monthly calls, our hope circles, and the Department of Peace Building monthly calls. And I'm gonna end with a quote um, from the book, uh, from Jeffrey's book and uh, the other, he's a co-author. Systemic change is not possible without personal change. Systems and institutions change when people change and people change with dialogue. Mm. So again, thank you both. We're gonna transition now to the Department of Peace Building. Um, so as I said, there's a bill in the house. This, this historic measure will augment our current problem solving options, providing practical nonviolent solutions to the problems of domestic and international conflict. The legislation will pass from bill to law under one condition, that is that a wave of citizen interest rise up from the American people and make itself heard in the halls of Congress. And Karen Johnson will be facilitating this portion of the call. I've known Karen for 15 years. She started as a volunteer back in 2005. First, she was a congressional district team lead, then a state coordinator. Uh, she was, um, and now she serves on the Department of Peace Building Committee. So Karen, over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, I, I think we wanted to, to just start out with just seeing how many people by raising your hand on the system are familiar with the Department of Peace Building enough to if somebody says, do you support it, you can say yes or no. Yeah, so either on screen or using the raised hand button. Just kind of look through and keep it raised and we'll see what kind of percentage we have of, and it might be, depending on if people are voting who aren't, don't have their video on or using their raise hand function. It's maybe about a fifth of people raising their hand and uh, maybe about half people on screen. Okay. Thank you. I just wanted to, to do that quick check. So we're going to just do like a five minute overview kind of status on this call about the legislation and campaign and then open it up for any questions or comments that people might like to, to make for five or six minutes and then we have a, a minute or two of a wrap up. So uh, I think a lot of people know that it was introduced again this year. There were uh, some changes made that in, include <clears throat> uh, provisions for the racial healing and so forth. So we've we're, we've been adding 
rather timely things, uh, the last couple of sessions of Congress to the bill. Uh, overall, we have been, as the campaign, trying to be the Department of Peace in action in, in how we're working together and uh, creating our actions and uh, exploring what that means every year and, and how we expand what we're doing and, and, uh, and the communications that we're having. And we look at the bill, uh, people have called it visionary. Uh, we also call it comprehensive. Uh, so that while there have been different pieces of legislation that have passed that really contribute toward more peace building and peace and violence reduction uh, in, the, in the Congress, uh, this is a comprehensive piece of legislation that really has people responsible for addressing all of the aspects of our society and government that would contribute toward uh, having a, a peace building and a sustainable peace. So that's why a number of us are have been jazzed about this legislation from the day we found out about it and uh, in very varying aspects of action around it and keeping it alive and the, uh, the framework of it, of creating a government infrastructure, a permanent government infrastructure to continue to address these things. <clears throat> uh, we've got other people on the, from the committee on the call as well. We wanna just bring up that the 20th anniversary of the bill being introduced is happening this year on July 11th. And we're going to commemorate that in some way. We won't get into that now, but uh, uh, just kind of a reminder that we've been at this, uh, the bill has been alive in various forms for 20 years this year. And a lot of us know when we came to the Peace Alliance uh, and this was the lead piece of legislation <clears throat> uh, that we were prepared that it was a long haul, that this is uh, a paradigm shift, uh, not just a, a piece of legislation, but it will require a shift in consciousness for the people and for our government for it to be passed. And uh, we're quite aware of that and, and some things take longer in Congress than others. So with that, does anybody have any questions or thoughts that they'd like to share about the legislation? And I guess we'd, uh, people could raise their hand or just unmute themselves and speak and see if that works or if we need more order. Yeah, I think I see Nancy. Are you unmuted? Go ahead, Nancy. Yeah, uh, well, I just wanted to acknowledge since we have um, people on the call who've been with this, um, with the Peace Alliance and the Department of Peace Building campaign since pretty much since day one, some of our founding members are here. Um, I think Kathy mentioned Jeffrey and Hart. Um, I think Matthew's on, Judy's been around forever. Um, a lot of folks from the Department of Peace Building Committee and Kathy's been, a lot of folks have been around for a long time and we, um, acknowledge and appreciate you all. And we appreciate all the rest of you who've been learning more about this in more recent years. So just a, just a kind of shout out, thank you to everybody. Thank you, yes, very important, very true. Okay, anyone else want to say anything or ask anything? You can wave on screen or raise your hand. I'm trying to keep an eye out here.
Okay, well, we can always fill some time about the Department of Peace legislation. <laughs> that is not a problem, but it's always good to see where people's interests or questions might lie. Uh, so primarily what we've been doing is focusing on uh, getting more co-sponsors on each year. So there's always a time when you can call your representative or representatives in your state. What we've found is we, you know, as a rule, you're going to have more impact with your own congressperson. But we have found, we'll say we're with the national campaign and everybody here is with the national campaign. You don't have to be on the national committee to be part of the national campaign. And you could call places in your state or in your region and we've gotten results from that as well. So at any time you can go on the Department of Peacebuilding page of the Peace Alliance website and, and see the current actions that we have. Uh, some of the things that we've done recurring is we start out the year with the season for nonviolence <clears throat> and Nancy does a great job pulling together. We talk about different uh, focuses for different uh, representatives in addition to your own representative to try to focus on you know, between five and, and 20 representatives, depending on what, we, what we're looking at, timeliness and, and situation uh, in a given year or time of year. So we encourage people to call certain representatives in addition to their representative or their other state or regional representatives. And, and then we have peace once a piece of the pie. We've done that every year since the Peace Alliance started that. Uh, again, the, usually we would go to the local representatives' offices and establish relationships with the staff there. Uh, since COVID, it's it's still we've we've been you know either contact there or, or contact the representative in DC, and <clears throat> then we usually have some kind of a summer initiative. And this year, like we say, we're commemorating the anniversary of the legislation and then advocacy days. And last year was the first time we had virtual advocacy days along with a, a summit with a number of wonderful speakers, many of whom are on the, <laughs> this call now too, uh, the founding people and the people who are active from the very beginning. Uh, and uh, we've got those on, on tape and you can see a link to that on our DOP page as well. Uh, Nancy, is there anything you wanted to add to that that I missed? Oops. Hello. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I just was, it struck me when Jeffrey was talking um, that we've learned so much about peace building over the years. And um, his, the idea of community peace building and dialogue, that's all been you know it's been developed i think over the years since we started also those ideas and policies have been written into the department of peace building bill and um i don't know to me the joy of doing all this work is is meeting all the folks who are active in it and being you know building this community and learning all these ongoing practices um and seeing them applied, as Cynthia mentioned, just um, the, the way it's applied in the community in San Diego or the way it's applied in the community of Gainesville or other communities. Um, those, are, those are some of the things that popped out when, um, when our previous speakers were talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just got to note that there's somebody on a cell phone with their hand raised. Did we miss anybody? Oh, I think okay. that's Deborah. Like Deborah. 
you know how to unmute yourself, star six. Go ahead, Deborah. We can't hear you if you're speaking. I didn't raise my hand or anything. I've just been listening. So I don't I know was... how, is it me, Deborah Walters, that you're looking oh, for? No, or? no, you're, okay. no. There's a 404 number. It might not be Deborah, but there's a 404 number on the phone. Okay, it's not, it's not me. I okay. admitted myself. <laughs> but hello, hello, Deborah from 614. <laughs> okay, hello. she's not speaking. Cynthia, what, what would you like to say? Well, I, what I would really like to say is I've been working with Miss Nancy for some years now. And um, the way that we have actually worked with our congressmen and our senators and governors and our mayors is our children being involved. Children make the difference. And if we're, and I notice when, um, when people in high power get letters from children, that is not like them getting letters from us. Um, Miss Nancy, every year around about this time, we, we try to get about a hundred letters from a hundred different children and their input of what they would like to change in their neighborhood. And there has been many um, people that wouldn't have joined the Department of Peace that now have came on and say they support it. So what I would like for all of you to do is to also get on the campaign and write to your congressman and your senator what peace means to you and how would you bring peace and help bring peace um, upon your neighborhood and your community. They do read it all the way to the president of the United States. Um, again, um, I, I'm so pleased to, to be a part of uh, this movement. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that, Ms. that Mr. Brian Gibbs and uh, Sue Tresner brought me apart. And just a little bit about me, I'm, um, when I first came on, I'm gonna just be for real. I said, why are you white people bringing me in here? Are you gonna come to my neighborhood and just come to San Diego, California and get what you need with money and then leave? And they told me, we will never leave you. And um, those are true, Peace builders, they're my friends, um, and I'm, I'm just glad to be a part. But I would like for everyone here to also be a part of the writing campaign um, to tell them what you feel about it and to get it to Miss Nancy. Because you know, a community that works together stay together. Yeah, and Nancy has a template for, uh, for to write your congressperson, right, Nancy? There's a bunch of stuff that, that's available for people. Um, yeah, on the website, um, uh, if you go to the main page and then you click on the Department of Peace Building page, we have a lot of resources on uh, what to say when you call your congressperson or what to do if you wanna have an, an organization indoors or key highlights about the legislation. There's there's a lot of stuff on there um, if you, if you go on and want to research it further. And there is a monthly meeting that the Department of Peace Building has. So this is just a short you know, uh, meeting just to, to update people that might not make that other call. And now maybe you might want to make the other call. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
We've and got and we all we always like to hear from all of you what kind of work you're doing in your own communities. Mm -hmm. and, um, that it all matters. All of it really matters. We do still have two folks who have raised their hands that are on their cell phones. Um, the first person is with area code 404. You're unmuted. Would you like to share? I, I think we uh, talked to her. Apparently the, the hand must be raised, but there's no question. How about the area code 770? You would need to unmute. You would press star six. Do you have a question? That's me. Hello? <laughs> I'm me. <laughs> okay, this is Deborah. Hi, I'm on two different lines. Okay, I couldn't get through on the sec first line for some reason, but um, so I'm coming on the second line. So I just wanted to... Um, say, first of all, there was one initiative that was not mentioned, and that's the initiative to kind of internal to suggest language into the bill every year. So a lot of us have a lot of language in the bill from this past year and multiple years. And this is a, we don't, we're not ALEC. We cannot um, decide what goes in the bill, but we have this great suggestion process that Nancy Merritt um, coordinates and um, it goes to Congresswoman Lee's office. So a lot of us do have language in the bill because of that. And the other Laura, thing, Laura, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and end on time, but you can stay on if you want. Um, I think somebody had a quote they were going to close with. Yeah, go ahead, Laura Brown. That's me. Uh, this quote comes from Jane Goodall, who recently received the uh, 2021 Templeton Prize. And she says, what you do makes a difference and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Great, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Laura, if you wanna stay on, um, yeah, I'll be here. Deborah. Yeah, that was Deborah. Oh, Deborah. Yeah, yeah did anybody uh, hear me? I, I yeah. just spoke. I don't know if anyone heard me. I don't know yeah, if we, I even we made heard it through. You. It's, yeah, we heard you, it's just the end of the call. So they're okay. I, I tried. I tried. I tried really hard. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thank Good night, you. everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.